Okay, we're recording. All right, so this is a uh, this is actually the beginning of a of a five part series that was supposed to be about basic Judaism, but then a war broke out in Israel. If you haven't heard, um, and I just felt like a it would be almost insensitive to just continue with whatever other topic, and b there's just so much misinformation uh, about how we how we sort of got to this place. Um, so I thought I would, um, I thought I would uh, just go through some basic history, um, specifically about Israel's creation, 1948, uh, the Six Day War, 1967, and uh, and some of the history of the Gaza Strip, specifically, and where we are now. But I want to say something at the outset. Two things. Number one, I want to dedicate my words to um, the memory of the. Uh, approximately 1,000 Jewish people, Israelis, that have been killed. Um, and what's unique and awful is that the overwhelming majority of them are civilians, not that losing a Jewish soldier is any worse, is any better. But, um, you know, people have been comparing this to the Yom Kippur War. Um, Yom Kippur War, there were approximately 2,500 Jewish lives that were lost, but mostly soldiers. This is predominantly, I, I, the number I heard was something like 160-something were soldiers, and the rest were all civilians. So there's a, um, uh, a massive humanitarian kind of um, aspect to this war. Um, and I don't want, and the second thing I want to say is, I don't want anything misconstrued here as though I'm trying to give some sort of rational explanations for what's happened. Uh, and now you'll come out with clarity as to how human beings can act in such a barbaric way. Uh, I, will, I have no such explanation. Um, there is no justification, no matter what comes out of our discussion tonight, as far as I'm concerned. And I know I'm telling you the conclusion at the beginning. I shouldn't do that. But there's no, in my mind, justification uh, for the kind of treatment uh, to which our people have been subject in the last week. Um, it is just beyond. It, it borders on Holocaust memories, uh, the kind of attack that was uh, perpetrated against. Uh, and I want to say the Jewish people. I don't want to just say Israel, as though Israel is, um, is something different or something separate from us. We are one. And uh, the way we know that is because Anyone who really opposes Israel is ultimately opposing Jews, and there, there's, there's a, a tremendous attempt on the part of uh, parts of the academic world and other parts of the intellectual worlds to make a distinction. I have no problem with Jews. It's just the Israeli policies, and that's fine to critique Israeli policies, even to protest against them um, in, in, a, in, a, in, in a serious way. But um, when your aim and your goal is to simply destroy that's when it goes from anti-Israel sentiment to anti-Semitism. And that line was crossed decades ago, okay, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I want to start with a story that will give a little context, perhaps, of how Israel began and, and, and where we're at now in terms of um, the situation. So May 1948, before the state was declared, and everyone should be aware of this, 
the combined Arab armies of Iraq, uh, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, were all poised on every Israeli border ready to attack. And Golda Meir was the... Was the um, was in a leadership position at the time. She was sent to the United States to raise fund, to raise money for Israel's new and fledgling army. It was called the Haganah. It wasn't even called the IDF yet. And she stood before a large gathering of Jewish philanthropists in Chicago. She happened to be the only woman in the room. This is 1948, so when they send philanthropists, it's mostly guys, men. And she's in this room, and she said the following, and I quote, In a few months, a Jewish state will exist in Palestine. We shall fight for its birth, that is natural. We shall pay for it with our blood, that is normal. The best among us will fall, that is certain. But what is equally certain is that our morale will not waver, no matter how numerous our invaders may be. It is not to you, she told the group, to decide whether we shall continue our struggle or not. We shall fight. The Jewish community of Palestine will never hang out the white flag before the Mufti of Jerusalem. The Mufti was... um, the head, really, of the Palestinians, um, and a terrible anti-Semitic leader. And he, she said, but you can answer one thing, whether the victory will be ours or the Mufti's. And it's unbelievable because, um, by the way, she was a very successful fundraiser. Um, that speech, there was like a, a deafening hush on the audience, and she thought she completely bombed and failed. But one by one, people started coming over to her afterwards and making pledges uh, from their respective communities. They were representing the 48, 48 different states from the United States. And she raised um, an enormous amount of money, um, five times the amount that Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister at the time, was setting out to raise. He was going to try to raise $5 million. She raised $25 million in 1948, which is a huge amount of money. That day, she raised $25 million. And by the time she came back to Israel, she was able to tell them that they raised $50 million, which was necessary to be able to purchase not only the guns and munitions and bullets to fight off the Palestinians, but they would need artillery to protect themselves against tanks and against an air force, which Israel didn't even have yet. And it's 75 years later. We have much more of a sophisticated um, you know, uh, army but Israel's still fighting for her survival. And no matter what your attitude, our Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel are going to continue to fight. And I think we, again, on the sidelines on some level, have a choice to make, and, and that's whether, and that's how successful Israel will be. You know, we can decide to remain passive and simply just literally scroll, and I think that's why I, like, I, I was telling Jill, my wife, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to teach tonight. I'm just utterly depressed. I'm just watching so much awful images on, and um, but it's 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 really unhealthy, and it doesn't help anybody. And it's incredibly important to be involved in some kind of way. So first of all, you're all doing that a little just by being here and learning something, just to arm yourself with information and wisdom, so that you can talk to your colleagues at work and your non-Jewish friends or your Jewish friends that have been bought into, to one degree or another, the Palestinian narrative. And it's a complicated one, so I'm going to get into it in a minute. But, you know, we can allow Israel to fight this war herself, or we can, we can, do, what, we can do our part, which is to pray for her, which is to donate money, 
which is to be knowledgeable and to defend her, at least in the public arena. And you'll say, what does it really matter? And I'll just tell you right off the bat, this, the ability for the IDF to do what it needs to do against Hamas is going to come down to time. Because it can't fix this problem overnight. And this has happened again and again and again, and towards the end of class I will get um, to, to that. I want to just take you through 48 and 67 first so we can understand how Gaza actually happened. But um, when the pressure starts mounting on Israel, and I don't just mean pressure from Arab countries, that's already on them. I mean pressure from Israel's friends, like the United States, that they need to call off the, the fighting. These images that are now very clear in everyone's minds, I don't know if you read my blog, but this is what I wrote, will be replaced with other awful images of poor Palestinian children. And I don't say that in, with, with tongue-in-cheek. I, it's terrible. They're innocent. Children are always innocent. Uh, but that will be the new image in people's minds, and the only thing that will be on everyone's minds is how do we get Israel to stop pummeling, pummeling, excuse me, um, the Gaza Strip. But we will then be left with the same problem, and we'll have to go in again in another two, three, five years, depending on how long it takes them to rearm and to regroup. Which is what Hamas did the last five or six times during every ceasefire. They spent every second of the ceasefire until they violated it, rearming and regrouping. So this is a very, very difficult situation, and it will require not only a war on the front line, because you'll say, oh, Israel doesn't, shouldn't care, but, you know, how long can you go just basically telling the world to go fly a kite? At some point, they're going to have to exceed, and therefore it will really come down to us on the sidelines to um, literally every single day call a member of Congress and call someone else who has some sort of position of authority in this country and to say that we we strong we stand behind Israel and we feel she, she needs to be given the latitude and the time she needs to correct this problem permanently or else we're going to be in the same situation again. So how do we get into this situation? So the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, I just mentioned a little, broke out when five Arab armies invaded the territory in the former British Mandate. And this was the day after Israel was declared um, a the day after Israel declared themselves a state was the day that these five Arab armies attacked. On November 29, 1947, the United Nations General Assembly adopted Resolution 181, known as Partition, which would divide Great Britain's former Palestinian mandate into Jewish and Ar- army and Arab states in May 1948. Okay, so they, they voted on it in 1947, and it was to go into effect in 1948. Okay. So number one, you have a fact that's important for you to know. Israel was not taken, it was not conquered by some sort of colonial group from Europe. First of all, Jews have been living in Israel for 35, 3,600 years, besides fact, okay? We've been there longer than anyone, okay, except for maybe the Canaanites and uh, Yebusites and others that are are in the Bible that that the Jewish people took the land from initially, okay? We offered peace treaties, but there were wars there. We're talking, that's the Torah, when Joshua brought the Jewish people into Israel. But we've been living there for 3,500 years, and the, the world voted in favor of partition. Okay, And in order to get enough votes, you had the entire Soviet bloc, which is very difficult to understand. They ruthlessly, Stalin ruthlessly persecuted Soviet Jews for decades and voted in favor of partition and brought along the entire Soviet bloc, 
It was a bit of a miracle. You would think after the Holocaust, the world's sympathy would be inspired and it should be a no-brainer. The United States, by the way, was the first country to vote in favor, 11 minutes after it was declared. Not so simple, though. Harry Truman was not a great lover of Jews. He was getting a tremendous pressure from the State Department not to vote in favor of partition because the Arab countries were pressuring them and threatening them with oil prices. Okay, this goes back, right? And, and, and lots of crazy things that the American Zionist leadership had to do to convince Harry Truman, the President of the United States at the time, to vote in favor of partition. It was not a simple thing. It's like a little of a miracle of a story also to know for another time. Anyway, um, five Arab armies invaded the next day. The Palestinian Arabs refused to recognize the partition. You can see videos of Jews, Israelis, dancing the horror in the streets of Tel Aviv. When they gave us this little snippet, does anybody know what we originally got? We got basically Tel Aviv. We got West Jerusalem. You know, Haifa a little. You know, Jaffa was tiny, 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 tiny. What Israel is today is three times the size of what the United Nations partitioned to Israel, and we were thrilled, because we had something. The Arabs were not thrilled, and they attacked. On May 14th, Palestinian Arabs and other forces launched an air attack on Tel Aviv, followed by an invasion from Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Egypt. Saudi Arabia sent in a formation, which is unbelievable. I'm just going to mention something about Saudi Arabia. They were part of the initial attack, and the fact that that was the next country that was going that Israel was trying to make peace with as part of the Abraham Accords has everything to do with what's going on as far as I'm concerned uh, the, the timing of this right now because there's no question that uh, Iran is behind this whole thing and the last thing Iran wants to see is a treaty between Saudi Arabia and um, and Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia sends a formation that fought under the Egyptian command after tense early fighting, Israeli forces now under joint command were able to gain the offensive. And through the United Nations, they brokered two ceasefires during the conflict. Fighting continued um, into 1949. Arab and Israel did not reach any formal agreement until February 1949. Israel gained a little territory. But basically, Egypt and Jordan retained control over the Gaza Strip and the West Bank respectively. Okay, since this is being taped, I'm going to get some crit critiques and I'm calling it the West Bank. What do I mean by the West Bank? That's part, it's in Hebrew, it's called Yehudah Shomron. Some of the most important biblical sites of Judaism are in the West Bank. That's just what the world calls it. A lot of Israelis or Americans don't like that because it's really Judea and Samaria. Um, uh, there are theories that the reason the name has been changed is because anybody know how we got our name Jews? <laughs> I used to think we were named Jews after the fourth son of Leah in the Bible. Jacob marries Leah, and their fourth son, they named him Yehuda uh, as an expression of gratitude and thanks. And uh, Jew, Yehuda, means to be thankful. That's not why we're called Jews. You know why, how I know that? Because if you look at Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther, which is a Purim story that took place much later, who was referred to as a Jew. It was Mordechai, the Jew, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, not from the tribe of Judah. So it's not because we were from Judah. It's because we're from a place called Judea. 
So how would you? How would it sound like if you told a Frenchman that he can't live in France, or an Englishman he can't live in England? So it doesn't sound so great that a Jew shouldn't be living in Judea. So we call it the West Bank. This is just a, like a geographical pinpoint, you know, the West Bank of something, you know. Okay, I'm done with my harangue. I'll get back to the facts. Okay, um, I think that's factual, though. Um, now, who is Israel's major backer all this time? We're, we're in 48, 49. The state is created. Where is um, Israel getting its support from? You would think the United States. It was not. France. France. France was Israel's chief supplier of arms until the Six-Day War, when France basically said, we're pulling out. The United States also uh, communicated through uh, their um, Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, a nice Jewish boy from Germany, and lived in Washington Heights for many, many years. His family, some of his family is still there. and um, made it very, very clear to Israel that if they shot the first bullet in, 1940, in 1967, the Six-Day War, that they would not have America's backing either. Now, you have to understand what happened in the Six-Day War. The phenomena was just crazy. Now, basically, the Arabs are not happy that the Jews have themselves a state. So there's all sorts of terrorism that's going on. And there's something that's created before the Six-Day War, before the Gaza Strip was captured, before the West Bank was captured, when Israel was only West Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, when was the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the mother of all Palestinian groups, the first, really, to be formed? 1964. Very important fact to remember. If the Palestinian Liberation Organization was, was devoted simply to kicking Jews out of these lands that they conquered in the Six-Day War, which we did, then how is it that that organization came into existence four years before there was a war? Now, even if it came into existence afterwards, it has no legitimacy, because why did we take any of those lands? And this is crucial. We're up to a part you need to remember. Why was there a war fought in 67? And I have to say this slowly, because most articles you will read even in mainstream, not left-leaning papers, we'll simply call it the Arab-Israel War of 67, which sounds like there was a war that broke out between two groups. Just like you'll see in the next couple of weeks, the Hamas-Israel War, as though some sort of you know, mutual battle was decided upon between the two parties. The world will quickly forget who attacked who first. Now you'll say, what does it matter? Well, if we're being accused of being immoral then it matters, because there's a moral duty to defend yourself when you're attacked. But if it's just, you know, then lay down your arms. If it's just a decision that two countries had, or somehow these European colonialists that were persecuted by the Third Reich had nowhere else to go, so they came and decided to basically remove the Palestinians from their indigenous native land. Now, there were Palestinians living there. I'm not going to debate that. There were. But there was no, in my opinion, attempt or motivation to settle Israel at the expense of the Palestinians. The goal was to live side by side, which is what the United Nations 
uh, agreed upon and what Israel accepted and was dancing in the streets, but the, uh, the Arab groups were doing just the opposite. Here's what happened with the Six-Day War, very briefly. Um, May 15, 1967, Egyptian troops begin moving near the Israeli border in the south. Uh, May 18, three days later, Syrian troops prepare for battle along the Golan Heights. Uh, Abdul Nasser was the most important Arab leader at the time, he was the president of Egypt. They were the most powerful and belligerent and anti-Semitic Arab country probably in the world at that time. He ordered the United Nations emergency forces that were stationed there to keep the peace since the, since the creation of the state. He ordered them to leave, which they did very quickly. And he said, as of today, there no longer exists an international emergency force to protect Israel. The sole method we shall apply against Israel is total war, which will result in the extermination of Zionist existence. That's a quote. Uh, Assad, who's the head of Syria, on May 20th, said, May 20th said, and I quote, our forces are now entirely ready not only to repulse the aggression. Now, what aggression is he referring to? What did the Jews do? What aggression? The aggression was becoming a state. Right? To explode the Zionist presence in the Arab homeland, the time has come to enter to a battle of annihilation. They closed off the Straits of Tehran, cutting off all Israeli shipping. Hussein of Jordan entered the defense pact and uh, announced, Nasser announced, quote, the armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon are poised on the border of Israel. To face the challenge, I don't know what challenge, while standing behind us are the armies of Iraq, Algeria, Kuwait, Sudan, the entire Arab nation, President of Iraq declared, our goal is clear, to wipe Israel off the map. 465,000 soldiers, Arab soldiers, are poised on Israel's borders. 465,000. Okay, Israel just called up 300,000 soldiers. This is a long time ago. Okay, 2,800 tanks, 800 aircraft encircled the tiny infant state of Israel. And uh, I mentioned before, they were always back-channeling between the United States and, um, and Israel, and the United States made it very clear, you cannot shoot the first bullet or else we can't stand behind you. Now, Israel was forced to choose. Do you wait to be attacked, lose the element of surprise, take the element of surprise, or have to go at it alone? And what did she do? She went at it alone. She wanted that element of surprise. And it was a stunning, stunning victory. Virtually the entire Israeli Air Force took off on June 5th in the morning. Less than two hours, approximately 300 Egyptian aircraft were destroyed on the ground. Then they went to attack the Jordanian and Syrian Air Forces. They very quickly had air superiority, which enabled them to maintain this, the, the edge throughout that war. Um, it wasn't until the Jordanians and the Egyptians were defeated that Israel could then send reinforcements to the Golan Heights, I'm sure many people here have been up north in Israel to the Golan Heights. If you ever see where Syria is today, where all the fighting and the terrible things that are going on, unfortunately, in Syria. Um, Russia's involved in there. Iran is involved in there. It's the hugest, biggest mess, unfortunately. And literally hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in Syria. It's just a mess. And thankfully, um, the Israelis were able to take the Golan Heights after two days of heavy air bombardment, they succeeded in breaking through Syrian lines. The Jordanians joined the attack. Golda Meir was trying to prevent that. They, they were fighting on two fronts. 
against the Egyptians in the south, against the Syrians in the north. They didn't want the Jordanians coming in from the other direction, but they, they couldn't stop them. So now they had to fight three at the same time. And not only were they successful, not only were they successful, but they were able to recapture territory. The old city of Jerusalem, they were able to capture the Sinai Peninsula, the entire Sinai Peninsula, which is massive, by the way. The, the entire Gaza Strip, the entire West Bank, Yudabish, Shomron, Judea, and Samaria. Now, just as everyone knows, that after the Six-Day War, Israel was in a military position to take over. They were in sight of Cairo, Egypt, Amman, Jordan, and Damascus, Syria. But Israel did not press forward because they had no interest. Israel continues to have no interest to occupy Arab territory, Arab countries, Arab land. It took all of these other countries as a buffer. And I don't know, maybe the old city, maybe the rest of Jerusalem, I don't know, to be intellectually, you know, historically honest, I don't know if that was taken necessarily as a buffer. Uh, it was in Jewish hands for thousands of years. We had two temples that each stood for at least 400 years there. It was, you know, taken from us. We tried getting it back when we were attacked in 1948. We were unsuccessful. We had the upper hand, and we took advantage of it. We have the old city, and we have the hotel, and we have the Temple Mount. You know, we, and this is very complicated why, I'm not sure I entirely understand why we uh, ceded um, Muslim authority over the, what's called, to the Waqf, which is the Muslim authority that has over the Temple Mount, but it's technically under Israel's sovereignty, the Temple Mount. And by the way, the Gaza War, I, I saw it three or four times on, on news networks, what's the justification for Hamas going in? Because of Israelis storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount? It's completely made up. There's no such thing. Jews can go there. We're not even allowed to pray there. There have been no storming. There have been no attacks. There's nothing. I have friends and rabbis and teachers who have gone there to pray. It's the Temple Mount. It's under Israeli sovereignty. There hasn't been any. You just make stuff up. You know, Hitler proved that if you just keep repeating the same lie enough times, people will start believing it. It's been said again and again. Any time Palestinian terrorists, and I'm sorry, they should not be called militants, they're terrorists, keep saying that, you know, what's the justification? They throw in the Al-Aqsa Mosque in, in the Temple Mount. Anyway, um, the Six-Day War was, was incredible, but of course the Egyptians and Syrians came back in 1973, completely caught us off guard, I think the 1973 Yom Kippur War is being invoked a lot, not only because we were attacked on a Jewish holiday like we just were, but because we were caught so off guard like we just were. And I still don't understand it. It's very, very hard to understand what happened along that hostile border. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm not a military expert, and I'm sure there will be a serious investigation. It's not the time for that right now. The time... Right now is for unity, which Israel is doing a superb job at unifying. The government, which has been fighting <laughs> tooth and nail, are now working together. They formed a unity government for the war. And uh, people on the left, people on the right, everybody's helping each other. 
There are chefs in Israel taking over, you know, big areas and cooking for soldiers. People are bringing things to the front lines. It just, I, the, I mean, we sh- those are the videos you should be sharing and sending around. First of all, they'll, they'll lift your spirits. They want you to depress you and make you just eternally sad like the other ones. But it's, 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 it's an unbelievable... It's an unbelievable achdus and unity going on in Israel. Um, now, just let's get into the Gaza. We have a few more minutes. The origin of the Gaza conflict is that, essentially, Israel took over the West Bank, Gaza Strip. Um, Hamas, which was founded in 1988 uh, to fight against Israel, I checked Wikipedia, it said against Israeli occupation. It's wrong. Check the Hamas charter. It's not against Israeli occupation. It's against Israel. Their goal is not to simply remove Israel from occupying those territories. It's to remove Israel from being, from existing, period. You need to know that. Read their charter, not what the people are, what the world is saying. Um, and the biggest proof is I remember, how many of you guys remember the disengagement from, from Gush Katif? From, from, it was in 2005. So we basically handed it back. Now, that was a very controversial... Now, there were, anybody know what other territories did Israel capture in '67 and ultimately give back? The Sinai Peninsula was given back to Egypt in a, in a peace treaty in 1976, Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin. And by the way, it's a peace that's held. It's a cold peace, but it's, it's a peace. And they got something in return for the land. Peace. And that's a whole halachic discussion, a whole discussion amongst rabbis is it permissible to give back land for peace? My, our teacher from our community, Rabbi Salvechik, was in favor of that. He says, don't ask me if it will create peace. You have to ask the experts. But if they believe it will create peace, he says, you can give back the kotel. You can give back the wall for peace. Other rabbis are against it. Lubavitch Rebbe, for example, was famously opposed to any territorial concessions, even if it could produce peace. It's a, it was a debate as to whether or not you're allowed to give back Jewish you know, land, Israel, land, uh, biblical land. Um, so it's a debate, whatever, I don't want to get into that right now. But a lot of my rabbis were in favor during the Oslo Accords in the early 1990s when there was this whole discussion about territorial compromise. And there were some examples of it being successful. With who? With Egypt, Sinai, we got a peace treaty, and Jordan, what did we give to Jordan? What did we give to Jordan? Um, we, there were a bunch of things that were given. They didn't really get like a territory, but there were parts of um, West Bank that they were discussing and all that. Um, now, when Hamas pulled out, so why did Hamas pull out? Excuse me, why did Israel pull out of um, the Gaza Strip? It was under Ariel Sharon. He was the prime minister of Israel. He was a right winger. Um, he was a decorated general, very respected war general. He said that uh, it would grant Israeli citizens the maximum level of security. He believed this. Why? Well, they were, the army, they were spending a lot of resources to yeah. protect uh, the settlement. Right. There were about seven to 8,000 Jewish Jews that were living there. I don't want to call them settlers because it was our land. Um, and they were surrounded by approximately 1.1 million hostile Arabs. And it was just expending too much from the Israeli army. And they thought it would be um, a good idea to do that. Um, 
Number two, they also thought it would allow Israel's security, security apparatus to better protect the West Bank settlements, which were more heavily populated and, uh, and have greater historical and spiritual import than the Gaza Strip. So they thought like that would be you know, a better, the lesser of the two evils, if you will. And finally, they argue that an Israeli presence in the Gaza Strip was in, always intended to be temporary. It was kind of like understood that after the war, they would use it as a negotiating kind of thing, and they would trade it. So he pulled out. Now, there were many people, I had a lot of friends, rabbis, who were very much against it. And a lot of those uh, Jews that were living in the Gush Katif had to be forcibly removed from their homes. It was not easy. And a lot of them were not resettled properly by the Israeli government. Um, they, were, they were given monies to resettle elsewhere, but it didn't work out like it was really supposed to. Um, opponents of the plan argued that Israel was just retreating from Gaza under fire. They were capitulating to Palestinian terrorism and that they should only leave in the context of mutually agreed concessions. This was a unilateral cons- um, kind of return. Israel didn't have any discussions. They just picked up one day and they said, this is yours. Now, they gave them the greenhouses. They gave them these beautiful factories. There were 24 communities where Jews were living very nicely in the Gaza Strip. And they gave them all of this beautiful equipment. And what do you think they did with it? Destroyed all of it. Four months after the pullout, Hamas won this legislative election in the Palestinian territories. People assumed that the Palestinian Authority... Fatah, which is the quote-unquote more reasonable, and I say quote-unquote because they're very complicated Fatah. Fatah has been and continues to engage in what's called pay-for-slay. They pay about $35,000 a year to the family of any jihadist who kills a Jew in a terrorist incident. And we have all the paperwork during the Trump administration. It got shut down for a certain period of time. My dear friend Sander Gerber is very, very involved in that. Um, it was called the Taylor Force Act. Um, Taylor Force was an American studying at Vanderbilt University who was killed by Palestinian terrorists in Israel. And when his parents found out that the family of the terrorist that, that killed their son, not a Jewish person, who, who fought in the, who was a U.S. Marine and the whole family, four generations of, of Air, Air Force Marines, they found out that, uh, that they, the family was being paid all this money. They did a whole expose, and they got Congress, with a lot of Jewish support, to, uh, to push back against the Palestinian Authority, Fatah, and to pull back that amount of money. And that you keep doing this, you're not going to get any money from the United States. The European Union kept pouring money into there. So they're a little more complicated, but they, were a little, they still enter into peace negotiations, and their charter doesn't say that they're they're, 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 they're devoted to the destruction of the Jewish state. Okay, but they're a little more complicated because, you know, it's like a little nishtahin, nishtair, a little, if you know a little Yiddish, it's like they're a little here and a little there. You know, Hamas is very straight. You know, you, you, you know what you're signing up with with Hamas. Palestinian Authority, but people assumed that they would take over the Gaza Strip when Israel left in 2005. Um, there was actually a fight. Does anybody remember there was actually a fight between the Palestinian Authority in Hamas, and it was a bloody overthrow, essentially, even though there were elections. By the summer of 2007, Hamas had won a civil war against the armed wing of the rival Fatah party and seized full control of Gaza. And um, since Hamas has been there, they've just been 
lobbing rockets into Israel. And every couple of years, I'll go through them, 2008, 2009, um, 2012, 2014 was the deadliest one. There were an estimated 2,200 Palestinians and 73 Israelis that were killed. Another flare-up in 2021 that involved Israeli air raids. Again, Palestinian rocket fire. Um, and this is what's been going on. And what happened last week was clearly the worst of it. Uh, unprecedented, not only since the Gaza Strip was taken over by Hamas, but really since the State of Israel was created. And uh, this is the Matzav. This is the situation in which we find ourselves in. Um, it is true that Israel has retained control over airspace, water, and electricity. So you will hear from others that the reason that Israel, that Hamas did this is either because of these Al-Aqsa things, which is completely fake, or it's because Israel has a, uh, has a blockade. What does that mean, that Israel's blockade? When Israel gave back the Gaza Strip, it still held control over airspace, water, and electricity. And it did so for a very obvious reason. It needed to maintain some level of control in case something like this happened. Now, I remember my tour guide on our trip to Israel in 2005 when the Gush Katif thing was happening, military, Israel military expert, my good friend Elliot Shadow, and he gave three or four lectures to our group, the MGE group. It's the best thing for Israel. He was convinced this is what Israel needs to do. And I was, I was like, come on, are you kidding? You're pulling seven, 8,000 Jews from their homes? This is good. You're going to give it? Who's going to run the place? We're on the border. We're like right here. This is not Egypt or Jordan that has like a legit government, even if it's like anti-Semitic, it's still like a government of someone you can talk to, there are elections, maybe they're fake, but there are elections this is like a bunch of hoodlums just a bunch of terrorists but he felt, and I'm not, I was not in the army, he used the army and a lot of people felt this way, that that was the best thing, so they retained some level of control in case there would be a, but this is where we find ourselves, I mean obviously you know, it's, what does they say Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? This is not the time for that. And I have no idea what Israel's plan is going to be exactly, but we should understand, I'll just leave you with these points and then open it up. It's just, we should understand, this is how Israel got there, okay? Israel got to Israel by the United Nations voting in favor of partition. We would have kept what we were given. We were about to be attacked by 465,000 soldiers, 2,800 tanks, and hundreds and 800 aircraft. We had the chutzpah to fight, you know, shoot the first bullet and win the war. In that war, we took territory. We gave back a whole bunch of that territory to make as much peace as we could. It worked with Jordan. It worked with Egypt, basically. It didn't work with, you know, whoever was supposed to take over the Gaza Strip. Okay, that's my reading of the situation. Um, that's my understanding of how we got to where we are. If anybody has any questions, please. Yeah, please. What does it mean to solve problems? So I, I'm not a, I don't know. I'm not an expert. I mean, it, it seems, just from my cursory understanding, that Hamas has to be taken out of yeah. commission permanently. 
it can't be allowed to somehow regroup. Now, there might be, of course, and there will be other terrorist groups. Israel is not going to carpet bomb two million people. There are two million Palestinian Arabs that live in the Gaza Strip. And now we have over 100 Israel, you know, Jews that are, have been captured, that have been brought there. So it's a very complicated situation. So I'm not sure exactly what Israel is going to do. Israel has the capability. I mean, this is the sad thing. I mean, it's sad, but, you know, if Hamas had what Israel has, Israel wouldn't exist. You know, unless God performed a miracle, which we believe he could, okay? Israel could wipe Hamas out in, you know, in a matter of, you know, the United States dropped a nuclear bomb on, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and put an end to the Second World War and felt it was morally justified rather than more Americans being killed to to stop the Japanese offensive. You know, is Israel considering that? I, I, I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not a military person. So that I don't know. And that's the quandary Israel's in because let's say they are successful in removing Hamas permanently. Who is then going to govern two million Palestinian Arabs? Now, that doesn't mean it can't be done. Israel was doing it before 2005. Was it great? No. If it was fine, we wouldn't have left, <laughs> probably. But it was a heck of a lot better than this. And we're living in a world of, you know, we're not living in an ideal world. So what's the lesser of the evils? You know, controlling the lives of two million Palestinian Arabs or allowing this to happen again, God forbid. Yeah, Henry. What's the responsibility of the Egyptians? Don't they share the border? Of course they do. And Egypt has closed its border to the Palestinians. Make no mistake about it, the Arab world could fix this problem. They don't want the Palestinian, the Palestinians. They don't want them. And they talk a very, very big game. Now, there have been Palestinian Arabs that have left Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip and finding their way into Syria, finding their way, you know, because there's bombings going on. Where are they going to go? Gaza Strip is incredibly tight and, and packed people. And Israel, and I just heard my friend Rudy Rockman, who I'm going to be interviewing on Tuesday, he um, was just called up for army service. We're not interested in, in civilians dying, God forbid. Any human being is created in God's image. We value every human life. Palestinian, Jew. But if they continue to shoot from hospitals, mosques, and civilian centers, I don't remember, I think it was, um, what's his name, who was prime minister for a couple of months, um, before Netanyahu just now. Uh, no, 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 just more oh, reason. Uh, yeah, Naftali Bennett said that, you know, we're not going to consider a mosque a mosque if you're shooting rockets from it. We're not going to consider a hospital a hospital if it's being used as a launching pad for rocket attacks. Now it's, a ro- now it's a military installation. That's why, by the way, and this is very important for everyone to hear, that's why innocents are being killed. Israel isn't just, excuse me, pissed off and just venting anger. They don't do that. There's no moral justification for that. And I hear that there was someone that went into some Palestinian village somewhere and just killed some Palestinians. There's no... Torah moral justification for that as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, I don't see how any somebody who could wear a kippah could do that, unless you could somehow demonstrate 
that instilling the fear of God in your typical Palestinian is going to stop these attacks. But that's, I don't, I don't see how anyone can, one can make that rational argument. But, um, yeah, please. I have a question about, about universities. Yeah. So yeah. I went to Tufts. I got an email today from uh, the new president of Tufts. And in the email, they condemned everything that Hamas is doing. But they didn't flat out come out and say, we stand with the Jewish people, we stand right. with Israel. And I also read something um, at Harvard University. Some of the student groups right. uh, signed some sort of agreement yeah. saying you know, they blame Israel for all these attacks. It's, it's all, it's Tufts, it's Harvard, NYU. I saw at the rally last night um, a rabbi from NYU who I got to meet last night. Um, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, the presidents of the universities will, will condemn and have condemned the atrocities. They may or may not say, I didn't know this about Tufts, thank you, that we stand with Israel. Some will say yes, some will say no. Yeah, they didn't say that. So I, I guess my question yeah. is, in general, I've always considered myself a relatively liberal person. Right. Progressive social justice stuff, right? Yeah. And it's always, as a Jewish person, it's always kind of perplexed me why being pro-Israel is not in that side of the of the docket, you know, and why it's somehow socially progressive and cool. It has become, yeah, because the world has bought into a false narrative. I don't know how else to say it. The world, and particularly the academic world, has bought into a false narrative that somehow the Jews are colonialists, um, colonialists, colonists, who have um, got the world's sympathy after the Second World War, after the Holocaust, and basically usurped land that was, you know, um, from the indigenous Palestinian population. Now, it's not completely false. Okay, that's why it's complicated. There were Arab Palestinians living in Israel before 1948 for, for hundreds of years. There were also Jews living there, too. But there was a war, and, and there was a government established, and the United Nations, supposedly representing the nations of the world, partitioned the land. This is what I spoke about earlier. And that partition, that's why people say, oh, it doesn't matter, this is ancient history. This, this is why it developed. This is, I went to Columbia School of International Affairs in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. I graduated in 1993. I'm saying this was big then. This has been going on a long time. And uh, Edward Said at the time was the head of the literature department, and he was a very you know, vocal advocate on behalf of Palestinian groups, including, pal including terrorist groups. And he was able to convince, uh, uh, with, with some other, in my opinion, pseudo-intellectuals, that what, 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 what ended up happening was that the Jews, they came back and they basically imposed themselves and purposely and intentionally dispossessed Palestinians of the land they were living on. It's much more complicated than that. Is it true that some Palestinians were uprooted from their homes? 100%. Was that the purpose and the intention of the Zionist uh, you know, enterprise, 100% no. Is that what happened to some degree? Yes. It happened to Jews also, where? Living in all of the Arab countries and Arab states. There were approximately 800,000 refugees that were created in the Six-Day War. There were approximately 800,000 Jewish refugees that were created also after the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. They were all absorbed into Israel. They came from places like Algeria, and uh, Morocco, and Egypt, and uh, the only difference is, is that the Palestinian refugees were never absorbed into their 
Arab countries. They were used, in my opinion, as a political pawn to keep Israel at bay. Because what better way than having to fight Israel? Let's say if you were Egypt or Jordan or one of the big Arab countries, you could use the Palestinian people to keep them as a thorn in the side of Israel rather than having to confront a superior military force. But the reason the academic world is, is brought into this is because it's somehow, during Black Lives Matter, during the pandemic, how did the whole Palestinian thing become part of the Black Lives Matter marches? It just got thrown into the whole social justice thing. And this is not new. I took a human rights, I was, uh, my, my field, my focus when I went to Columbia was human rights and international law. I went to law school and I studied international affairs and, and I went to these human rights seminars. In the late 80s, early 90s, Israel was already being put in the same category as South Africa and being called an apartheid state. This is not new. This is just, it just they just keep building on more and more lies. I mean, what can be done, if anything, about it? Because to me, it's... Education. So disappointing. I mean, these are the top universities in the country that are promoting... They're supposed to be beacons of, of They're not. high intellect. They're not beacons of high intellect, and there are other, unfortunately, examples of how our great universities are failing us, not in the area of, you know, Israel, per se, but in other areas as well. But it, I, think it, I think this is what started a lot of these universities down, down that road, when they start becoming political and partisan, and they start caring more about ideology than they do about facts and history. And... Um, that's why I tell people to read basic books. Mitchell Bard wrote a book called um, Myths and Facts about the Middle East. The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Middle East. It's just good. <laughs> just simple stuff about what happened. A lot of the stuff that you're hearing is just simply not true. But there's, a, there's enough confusion there, and there is enough suffering that unfortunately the Palestinians have been subject to. And they were put in refugee camps. Not by Jews. We don't put people in refugee camps. Okay? They were put in those camps by their own people. And, and, I, and we're, I'm not going to be able to do this in one class, obviously. But your question is a very, very important one. And don't get fooled just because, you know, the person has a doctor or they got their doctorate from Harvard or from Princeton or Yale. Unfortunately, there's just been, you know, and I'll just, I'll just I, I don't want to, chas v'shalom, God forbid, make a but do, do you, does anybody know what the most sophisticated university in the world was before the Second World War? What was, who was the Harvard of Europe? Rabbi Salvechik in the 1920s went to study at the University of Berlin. Why? 1930s, excuse me. Late, late 20s, early 30s. Because that was the Harvard of Europe. That's where the greatest intellectuals and scientists were studying. And, and the greatest scientists, by the way, were born out of Germany of that time. Most of them were Jews. Okay, Some of them were not. But, but um, you know, just because somebody is really smart and they belong to some, you know, prestigious academic institution does not mean they're not part of some. Now, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and just feel that and, and say that people are being co-opted, they're being convinced, but they're not really anti-Semites. I don't consider everybody who, who plays into that to be an anti-Semite. You know, I just I can't believe there's so many people that hate Jews. But I do believe that people can be naive. I do. And, um, I mean, why was it part of the whole Black Lives Matter? Why was being anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian part of the marches during Black Lives Matter? And a lot of MGers were calling me and saying, 
because I was, I mean, I was in favor of the Black Lives Matter, of, of certain aspects of what they were doing. I thought it was, after the Floyd and the whole thing, I, we should march. We march with Dr. King. Why won't we march with them? And my brother is, is a mayor in, in New Jersey, and he, every Saturday, he's a Sabbath observant, he walked every Saturday to walk with Black Lives Matter so he knew that their mayor was with them. And he saw a Palestinian flag. I said, Michael, you can't march anymore. It's, it's co-opted. It just threw it in there. Just get it in. And then people stop asking. It just becomes a thing. I don't know how else to explain it. We have time for just one or two more questions. Yeah. Um, in so it depends who in the in the world. The UN I gave up on decades yeah, ago. The UN is run, unfortunately. <laughs> if you look at the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, the people who run the UN are the are the most egregious human rights violators in the world. So the UN has zero credibility, unfortunately, in my mind. The question is: Other good Western countries, or or not, not only Western countries, other countries, there have been attempts on the part of, of, of good people in the world to pressure uh, Arab countries, but it's against their interests to accept poor Palestinian refugees, many of whom have been radicalized, and they don't want them in their country. And uh, what, what's the name? The Prime Minister of Germany who took, um, uh, during the Syrian crisis, uh, Germany took a, a huge number, and she got tremendously criticized because how do you vet? It's not so simple. We're concerned now in the United States that all there a lot of you know illegal aliens are coming in here, but you know if you were convinced a lot of them were raised to hate the West, I don't know. I think even the Biden administration might have come down and put up a border and built some kind of wall. You know, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I I think that's why a lot of the Arab, a lot of the Arab countries are also scared. Why do you think there's a peace treaty between Israel? and five or six Arab countries now. I love to believe because there's a cultural exchange, and there is, by the way, some cultural exchange. It's kind of nice. Very nice. Oh, yeah. That's why they call me Abra- Abraham Accords. Mm-hmm. That's not what started it. Does anybody know why? My enemy, my enemy is my friend. Yeah, it's Iran. They're terrified of Iran. And um, Israel has great capabilities of technology and, and, um, and to form some kind of alliance. Very, very important. Um, t- time for one other question. I should have left more time for this. I apologize. Uh, any other questions, comments, please? Is this understandable? Did I make any sense tonight? Like, yes. was this? Very I hope funny. I didn't depress everybody here, you know. Uh, you had a question? Well, just a comment. I was looking forward to the Abraham Accords, a guy you were going to speak to an interview a couple months ago, to get his thoughts on this situation. Yeah, so I would like to, and, and I will tell you, one of the greatest... Shandas, as they say, like the greatest shames that could come out of this is if the potential peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia is broken over this. Because yeah. that is, I think that's the timing behind this. Yeah. And that could be extraordinary. Now, it's not so simple because Saudi Arabia has always put the Palestinian, and whether you like Trump or not, Trump did something very, very brilliant, I think, which was that Every president before Trump, including Republican presidents like President Bush, said, we can't move forward, we can't help Israel move forward with any peace negotiations with any country unless, with any Arab country, unless the Arab-Israeli conflict is first resolved. 
And that prevented anything from happening and everything from happening. And Trump just basically gave up on the Israeli-Palestinian thing. He gave up and just said, let's see what good we can do here. Maybe he wanted to create a, a positive legacy for himself. That's why most presidents enter into, into these things. Um, but, um, and he did. And, and, and there's kosher food in Dubai now. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that's like, wow, but how awesome would that be? The Saudi Arabians are a little different because the Saudi Arabians were always saying we can't do this without, without there being a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians, which Israelis would love to have. Mm-hmm. It's called this two-state solution, which is basically dead, unfortunately. And, um, yeah. Yeah, question. Yeah, please. I just want to make sure everyone gets to speak. Countries that are going to be involved in the Abraham Accords, and say, you know, it's partly your responsibility too to be involved in the solution. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, listen, it would be the Messiah. Mess, the Messiah will come if any one of these, even Sunni Arab states, somehow pressure the Shiite states. They have almost no sway over that, by the way, because if we we kind of think there's no pan-Arabism anymore. There's the Sunnis and the Shiites, and even within the Shiite world, and within the Sunni world, there isn't a lot of peace going on. So I don't know if we're exaggerating what they could do. Of course they could do a lot more. I don't know. It would be amazing. It would be incredible. Are they going to do it? Are they going to allow themselves to become, to be seen as traitors amongst their own people? Um, By helping Israel? By actually coming to Israel's aid like America is doing now? That was Yasser Arafat's Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know. Just, yeah. If people really, really, it's not so simple. Anwar Sadat was assassinated for making peace with Israel. That's why he's. That's why he was killed. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. I know Leah's going crazy. We have to wind up. Um, any other comments or questions from anyone else? Yes, in the back, Jonathan. So I'm, I'm nervous to ask this question, but I will ask this rabbi. So, like, it's a very analytical conversation. So, on a spiritual level. I've been thinking, why is this happening? You know, and I have a few. You know, I don't. I don't know if you've been thinking just to like. I, I, I you know, I, I try. Or, yeah. Listen, this the way I'm going to cut you off if you don't mind. I always say this: I'm only a rabbi, not a prophet. Okay. And I really think you need to be a prophet to say why something like this is happening. I do. Other people have called me and said there was so much divisiveness in Israel. There was so much Jew against Jew fighting, as as recent as Yom Kippur. Okay, things were happening in Tel Aviv between one Jew and the next. Um, the the protests of judicial reform. Okay, they were they were pretty intense. I, I don't know if any of us philosophically, spiritually, are in a position to be able to say this happened because God is angry at the Jewish people because we didn't get along, and now we're getting along, things will be better. Is that what you were, where you were going a little? I think it's slightly different. I think he's trying to save us from hurting ourselves and we're just basically Listen, destroying this beautiful place that we have. I think he's trying to help us. I don't think he's trying to hurt us. But yes, it could well, Jonathan, <laughs> it, could well, it could very well be the case. I just don't know. Yeah. And I don't want to be, I want to be careful about saying things that you know, other people will find offensive that I'm not really sure about. Because I also feel that some of the 
animosity between one Jew and the next was somewhat exaggerated. I'm not saying that it wasn't there, and I'm not saying Rabbi Feldman was one of our... They were pulling mechitzas away uh, from his Yom Kippur service a week and a half ago because there's some new rule that you're not allowed to have public prayer services with the men and women separated. And it sounded like awful, and I saw videos of it, and it looked terrible. And it was not great. But was it like Jew fighting against Jew? Was it like... I, I, I think, you know, we get all of our information from the media, and if it bleeds, it bleeds. And nobody is reporting on all the wonderful things and how secular Jews and religious Jews do stuff every day together with each other and look out for each other, even before this thing happened. Mm -hmm. And how Israeli society functions on a pretty high level. Yes, we have, but it's a democracy, and people disagree. Now, did it get bad? Did it get worse? Yeah, it got worse. And is it possible that this is a some, some somehow you know spiritual lesson that God wants us to learn and throw something our way that's going to cause us or force us to unify, it's entirely possible. And I have friends that have called me and said that today, but I said, I'm not saying that, because I don't know. I don't know. I thank you guys for listening. <laughs> um, and we're going to continue. I would love for everybody to stay continuing to join us for the next couple of weeks. We will continue to discuss Israel. We're going to hit some other topics as well and broaden this conversation. Um, but we will continue this conversation next week. So don't feel like it's over right now. Come back next Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Okay? Thank you so Pleasure. much. Pleasure. Have a great night, everyone. Thank, thank you for you. joining. By the way, this Shabbat, a lot of people are being urged to come to services. This Friday night, 6.30, Saturday morning at 9.30. It's very important for us to be with each other, to show strength, and to up our spiritual game. So let's try to do that and uh, just really be spiritually present as well.